What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of Dressed Media. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Dress listeners, welcome to our two-part recap of our Paris adventures. Yes, I have one question for you, Cass. Have you recovered from your jet lag? (laughs) It took a while, let me tell you, especially (laughs) with a toddler coming back the other way whose sleep was, we had finally gotten his sleep figured out and then, you know, to come back. But no, we are recovered. Thank you for asking. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oddly, had the weirdest experience with jet lag. Um, that wasn't like the opposite of jet lag. I don't know. I've just been like popping awake and getting up and going to the gym gym at like 5 30 in the morning since I've been back that is the genius of jet lag is waking up earlier <laughs> I love waking up with the sun it's so cool we have a beautiful view of our mountains it's so nice to get up and get going um, but yes alas that did not happen this time but that's okay we're back and we're hairdressed listeners to tell you all about our Parisian adventures we had so so much fun and first we just wanted to mention you know obviously we are now on our own as many of you know we have five wonderful years with iHeart. And now we have Dressed Media, which is April and my enterprise. We're so excited. And we just kind of wanted to mention a couple things to you as we already have in the past as well. But as you know, we have a new website, which is dressedhistory.com. We have a new email, hello at dressedhistory.com. And we have a new ad-free subscription service that for just $3 a month, you can hear our new episodes, eight episodes a month, all ad-free. And you can support us in the process. So we just wanted to throw that out there. So if you guys are interested in subscribing to listen ad-free, all you have to do is pop over in the show notes and um, there will be a link to subscribe to the exclusive content it's $3 a month. And that is actually the ad free versions of our new episodes. So check it out. And we have so many exciting things coming down the dressed pipeline. Of course, we just had our Parisian trip. We've already had April. So many people asking us about next year. So we will announce those dates shortly. As you all know, dress listeners or should know, we have a New York trip planned for later this year. So more info will be coming your way on that. 
We also have some classes and tours up our sleeves that we'll be announcing details on in the coming weeks, but we just wanted to let you know. Um, and until then, we are going to recap our latest fashion history tour of Paris because not just to kind of share in our revelry and all the amazing things we've done, but if you go to Paris, these are fantastic suggestions of things that you can do if you cannot join us on our Paris trip next year. So what do we have for people today, April? We're going to be looking at our museum exhibitions, our tours. Oh my gosh, Cass, we did so many things. <laughs> we did so many things that we are going to have to make this a two-part episode. So this is going to be episode one. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the fashion museums we went to. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the people we met along the way and some of the very specific, incredible, very Parisian uh, fashion establishments that we visited. Um, and then we're also going to talk about some of these other like really cool kind of like private experiences that we had along the way. So um, I think we should start with the museums. Yes. Yes. And not just, we went to a ton of museums. And I just also want to say that we did two different tours back to back and mm -hmm. not each tour, unlike the first time we did this in 2021, unlike 2021, we actually did kind of different tours. They mm -hmm. had a lot of the same elements, but they also differed from one another. So to make this easier to understand, we're not going chronological. This isn't like the order of the tours we took. We're kind of doing it by theme again. So as a way for you dress listeners to um, maybe plan your own next Parisian adventure, right? So we saw a lot of museums and today we're going to start talking about specifically because it's Paris. Okay. So there's so many fashion related things to do, but they have wonderful designer museums. So museums dedicated to famous Parisian fashion designers um, or designers based in Paris. So it was only fitting that we started our fashion history tour of Paris at one of the most iconic fashion houses in fashion history, and that is the Dior Museum, Le Galerie Dior at 11 or 11 Rue Francois Premier. So just listeners, if you're thinking that is not the address selected by one Christian Dior to launch his now legendary fashion house, which he did in 1946, you would be correct because it is just next door to 30 Montaigne, which is the site and remains the site of the couture house to this very day. And both addresses re actually recently reopened after a two-year renovation and now include not only the couture ateliers, but a two-story boutique or maybe three stories, April, a restaurant, a, a pastry cafe, and this is insanely amazing museum that tracks not just the history of Dior, but his legacy as it was carried on after his untimely death in 1957, first by a 21-year-old Yves Saint Laurent, followed by Marc Bohan, uh, Gianfranco Ferre, Jean Galliano, Raph Simmons, and today is headed by Maria Grazia Chiari, and of course, Kim Jones designs for the men's side. But Dress listeners, Dior once said, fashion designers offer one of the last refuge of the marvelous. They are in a way the master, masters of dreams. And this museum is nothing short of a magical experience from start to finish. April, what were some of your favorite parts? Oh my gosh. Okay. So I don't even know where to start um, because obviously you and I were there not once, but twice, right? Yes. So the first 
time we were there, I guess I was a little bit stunned by the museum's like vastness. Um, We have had many fashion historian friends who had been before previously, because this is not, it hasn't been open all that long. I don't, I don't even know if it's been open entirely two years at this point. So this was our first visit. Um, and we have many friends who had visited before and said how great it was, but I thought it was going to be kind of like a small little cute museum. No, it just kept going and going and going (laughs) and going for days. Um, So it starts out with a very kind of like niche little tight history of Christian Dior himself and his upbringing and his family um, and kind of like his education in this kind of smallish room. And then the museum explodes out from there. (laughs) We should also say though, so you walk into the museum and there's a three-story staircase mm-hmm. or two stories. And up the entire wall is this rainbow of full-sized hat and shoe and purse accessories paired with miniature replicas of couture gowns. And it's mm-hmm. a rainbow, right? So it's all these different colors up the side. And if you saw the Designer in Dreams exhibition or the Christian Dior exhibition that's been traveling for a couple of years, you'll be familiar with what we're talking about. But that lines the wall. So that's how you start. And then when you, they don't let you go up the stairs because that's how you exit, but you take the elevator up. The first thing that greets you, of course, is an original 1947 bar suit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what a treat. And then as April set mentioned, it's like this chronology of who Dior was, where he was raised. And um, that's kind of how you start the exhibition with kind of a brief history of the Dior house under Dior. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of like exit that room, which kind of like silos you a little bit. And you walk down mm-hmm. a, 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 maybe like three or four stairs. And then it just, the whole museum like pops open, like aesthetically into like Dior dreamland. <laughs> Yeah. And it is a magical dreamland because it's night, right? You walk in, isn't the next part, the night part. So you walk into this room and it's dark and there's like stars glittering across the ceiling and across the dresses behind the dresses that are lit up with, with lights. And it's this beautiful comparative place where they put the designers who have followed Dior in conversation with Dior designs. So you have like originals from Christian Dior in conversation with like a John Galliano piece that was inspired by it and so on and so forth. And then you walk through there and out into the light. And do you want to tell people what you find at the end of this walkway? I mean, you exit the darkness into like this light room that has like some greenery outside on the flip side. But again, it's, it is that juxtaposition of the Dior looks with designers who have followed all interpreting his feelings about women as flowers, um, which is something that he he talked about in his very first collection. So you have several different uh, designers for the house of Dior, like paired with Dior. And it's just, it's spectacular. It's so lovely. It's so light and like happy. I think that I saw some people that weren't with our group, like exit from the dark into that space. And they like literally gasped audibly. Yeah. Gasped, <laughs> which I think I did too. I mean, you and I, I took a selfie in that room. It's really wonderful because of course, if you know a lot about Dior, you know, his mother was a gardener and she really instilled a love of gardening in both of her children. There were four of them, but 
in Dior and his sister Catherine specifically. And he, th so those dresses that April's describing are in front of a photograph of his home, uh, his childhood home. And it's just so wonderful to go from like this dark into the light. And then the next room is this incredible, they have like these tailored pieces that again, chart the trajectory of the house. And it's compared with like a video, a beautiful video of the designer, each designer that has followed Dior, right? I think it starts with Maria Grazia and then it works backward because Dior and Yves Saint Laurent are kind of juxtaposed next to each other at the end. So that video montage is amazing. I don't know. There's so many different elements, right? There's too many that we sh probably shouldn't go through each and every single one of them. But I mean, one of my all-time favorite elements of this that I think is so special is that Dior's office is there. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very light filled, beautiful room. And you walk through his office and next door is a cutout in the floor and they've given you a window into the cabine below. Yes. And this cabine is world famous. As many of our listeners know, you've seen so many photographs of mod, like famous photos of models, like getting ready in there, April. Right. And to be able to like, see it from the top like that and the way they have it kind of staged. I mean, what an incredibly beautiful, special experience. And we should probably, for some of our listeners who might not know what this term means, cabine, basically it was the, the uh, dressing room for the in-house models that worked at the house of Dior. And so modeling was a little bit different back then in terms of haute couture. Um, the houses employed models that would come every single day. And when clients would come, come in and wanted to see something, they would physically model it for them in person, right? So in order to do this, they had to have a dressing room. And so what Cass is talking about is the Dior cabine, which was actually multi-storied. Um, so when you're standing on top of the cabine, looking down through the glass floor, you're not just looking at one floor, but two floors below you. Um, and it's their little dressing tables and how everything was arranged and like their makeup. And it is so, so, so special and also incredibly difficult to photograph. Just saying. I tried. <laughs> yes. I did not get good photos. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to, and I took a video of it and we'll do a, definitely do a couple reels to accompany this podcast, uh, these podcasts this week, because obviously you're going to want to see what we're talking about. So look for our posts this week for sure. One of the other really special things that I really appreciated April was that they have Dior's early, early work at Piguet, Robert Piguet and Lucien Long, which was so cool. So before Dior was Dior, right? When he was in a designer under another designer. So spring, summer, 1939 PK suit and a black silk crepe evening dress um, for a little long circa 1945. That was so cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Also too, like some of our listeners might not know, but Dior was incredibly superstitious and uh, was, was a big fan of consulting mediums. But some of the things that are in the exhibition too are some of his little talismans and good luck charms. Um, so that's, that's like super cool and super personal as well. Yes. And there's like a whole section about art because numerous famous artists, of course, he was friends with them. I mean, many of you know, dress listeners that he started out as a gallerist, right? So he's very connected to the art gallery world. 
and like Salvador Dali, I think he was one of the first people to exhibit Dali, right, April? Or and I mean, he had so many, he was just heart and center, right, of, of Parisian artistic culture throughout his life. And so a lot of them depicted him. So there's a lot of, of his artwork of Dior in there, as well as from his personal collection. There's a whole room with Dior toiles, and each time you go in there, there's a demonst live demonstration, which was also really cool. So one time someone was making one of the quilted Dior bags, mm -hmm. uh, one of the artisans, and then another time two women were doing the perfume stopping stoppage for the perfumes mm -hmm. and packaging perfumes, which is, of course, an art form in and of itself because it's haute couture and it's Dior, so of course it is. But I mean, I think you and I can both agree that it was just such a magical experience from start to finish. One of the last rooms you see is this like three tiered room that's cold in there. For, it's like cold in there. And then there's like this or cooler in there, I should say. And then it's three tiered and it there's all this wonderful technology throughout the exhibition. And in this room, the lights go from day to night, the sun sets. It's, so. it's almost like a 360 immersive video projection. I knew you would describe it better than me. <laughs> inside, <laughs> inside the room that changes and it like kind of starts out as like um, stars, like raining down from the sky. And then it turns into like this, like neoclassical art history situation, but it's not just like one video projection on the wall. It's like on the ceiling, it's on the walls, it's on the garments. It's, it's, it's really, really beautiful. So. Okay, we have covered the Dior Museum extensively. We should perhaps move on. Yes. <laughs> yes. If you have one, I'm just going to say, if you have one fashion museum to go to in Paris, if you have time to do one thing, that would be what I would do. It's such a great entry to fashion um, and fashion history uh, at Paris. But alas, we have so many other offerings. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and another one, which I love always, and it's actually not as large. It's not as extensive. It doesn't take up as much time as going to the Dior Museum, but that would be the Azadine Alaya Foundation. It is in one of my all-time favorite neighborhoods in Paris. It's in the Marais, which is kind of like, you know, the gay hipster kind of like area of Paris. It's, it's, it's one of my all-time favorite neighborhoods, but Azadine Alaya, we've talked about him on the show a couple of times before. He was actually Tunisian. He was born in Africa, Northern Africa. He studied under Thierry Mugler. And then it was actually his boss, Mugler, that encouraged him to start his own line. And when he did this, um, he became very, very well known for his bodycon silhouettes. Um, very, very sexy clothing. And he was a huge fashion history nerd, just like all of us that are listening to this podcast. Um, and he was a huge collector too. So not only do at the foundation, uh, at the Alaya foundation, do they have his garments, but they also have his own personal collection of historical garments as well. So this space is very interesting. Um, it changes quite a lot. There is no permanent collection here on display. So what they do, they do temporary exhibitions. So sometimes uh, what's going on is it's Elias designs paired with another designer's work in conversation with each other or perhaps a photographer. So we've, we've now been there a couple different times. The times that we've been there, Cass, it happened to be when Elias garments were paired with 
one of his favorite fashion photographers that he worked with a lot, but there, there are entire other concepts that happen in that space as well. And Olivier Sayard is the director of the Alaya Foundation. And oh my gosh, this is, this, is this the third time now when I say on the show that I need to email him to see if he will join us? Yeah, because obviously consummate scholar and also an incredible like fashion history performance artist, mm-hmm. such an amazing scholar and artist himself. So again, we've talked about him multiple times. So yes, yes, because he also just curated a Madame Gray exhibition. Um, so it's just a matter of what topic to bring him on to talk about. But this exib- this exhibition was really cool. It was on Arthur Algort and Azadine Alaya's collaboration over the years. Mm-hmm. So really famous photographs. And what's so awesome about this museum and how it's laid out is if you're looking, it's just one room. So you walk in and you can't see any garments and they're kind of hidden behind the walls. So as you turn, as you walk, they reveal themselves. So you can see Arthur's photographs. And this is how it was just set up last time as well. See Arthur's photograph before you turn left and see the garment in, mm-hmm. in form. It's just so cool. There was a whole section on Naomi Campbell um, garments she had just worn. There was a Grace Jones dress, the p- famous, I feel like iconic purple dress. I mean, he designs for Glamazons, right? So if you yeah. ever see Azadine Elias garments displayed, it's like for a seven foot woman or that's how it looks. And of course, Grace Jones wore this iconic bodycon Azadine Elias dress. So that dress was there. That was so cool. But was really, really special about our visit this year is that they had opened his studio mm-hmm. for the first time recently. So if you go upstairs, there's another exhibition, small exhibition room, and there's a window into his studio, which they preserved exactly as it had been when he died. And I believe he passed on in maybe 2018. It was fairly recently. Fairly recently. And I think they just put twal like put a muslin on everything and kept it because they kept it exactly the way it was. Mm-hmm. And so you get to see into kind of like the organized chaos that is a designer's brain and workspace, right? Um yeah. so just such a cool museum. And as April said, if you have a half hour or an hour, just an hour to do something, this is a fantastic way to do it. Mm-hmm. Spend that time. I just want to say also the way that this man knew how to drape leather. Yes. I, I know that it doesn't seem like two things that can go together, but holy moly, <laughs> he, knew, I mean, he, knew, he knew what was up. <laughs> yeah, just an incredible connoisseur and artist and designer in so many ways. So check out the Azadine Alaya Museum, as you should also check out, because they have, as I said, it's Paris, so they have a lot of fashion, a lot of fashion history. So Azadine Alaya, Dior, and Yves Saint Laurent all have museums specifically dedicated to them and the, their legacy. And of course, Yves Saint Laurent was Dior's successor. He was just 21 or 22. And the reason he took on after Dior when he, Dior passed in 1957 at such a young age is because Dior himself had named him as his successor. Dior already at such a young age had seen how talented Yves Saint Laurent was. And, you know, it didn't take long. Dior, uh, Yves Saint Laurent was fired from Dior for kind of putting forward this younger silhouette, right? He put a leather jacket on the runway, the horror. He was fired, um, which was the best thing that could have happened to him, right? Because he opened up what would become one of the most iconic fashion houses in fashion history Mm -hmm. on December 4th, 1961. So he took that forward thinking, young, youthful, avant-garde imagination and innovation that got him fired from Dior and put it into full effect. 
um, transformed it into this really incredible career of artistry and elegance. And the Haute Couture House, uh, where the museum resides, is somewhere he went, I believe, in the 1970s, 1974. And he showed there for almost 30 years until 2022, when the Haute Couture House closed its door, but doors because Yves Saint Laurent retired. And 2000. Two was the same year that the Foundation Pierre Berger Yves Saint Laurent was created. Pierre Berger, of course, is Yves Saint Laurent's work and life partner. And um, he presided over uh, this foundation, which was basically tasked with preserving and promoting Yves Saint Laurent's legacy. Yves Saint Laurent died in 2008, but Pierre and this foundation were really instrumental in kind of promoting exhibitions, et cetera, traveling exhibitions. And the museum aspect of the house did not open until 2017. So that is where we, of course, had to go to see an exhibition that was called Yves Saint Laurent Shapes and Forms. It's actually on view until January 2024. So you still have time to see it, dress listeners, if you're in Paris. And it puts Yves Saint Laurent's work in conversation with a German artist, Claudia Weisner. And um, there's some 40 works in conversation with work by that artist, um, who really explores kind of modernist-inspired geometric constructions. And we all know, April, if you know a lot about Yves Saint Laurent, right? He really, from very early on, was inspired by art. Some of his most famous collections were um, Mondrian, inspired by Mondrian, right? And we actually saw a Mondrian jacket in the I exhibition. Was, I was, I, I gasped. I, I, yes. I said something out loud. I was like, oh, I didn't know there was a jacket version <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what you said because I was with you um it was it was in his office too which you've heard of us talk about dress listeners because at the very top of the exhibition it's like multi-tiered exhibition spaces at the very top they've preserved East Saint Laurent's office in this beautiful sunlit room and in that room they had uh, one of the Mondrian jackets which was mm -hmm. just such a treat so even if this exhibition isn't open, when you head to Paris, there's usually always an exhibition on there because that is what they do. Mm -hmm. So wonderful display of museums. Yves Saint Laurent, Dior, Azadine Alaya. Whew, that is not even one eighth of the things that we did in no, Paris. No, there's so much more. And we are going to tell you all about it after a brief word from our sponsors. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. 
podcast. As you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And we are back, dress listeners. So something we did this trip that we didn't do last trip because it didn't occur to us was we took other tours. Yeah, <laughs> because apparently Cass and I just like to make more work for ourselves. <laughs> and this was this was your genius plan. She's like, why don't we partner with French fashion historians or people working in Paris to like, you know, kind of take a little bit of the load of us doing things every day and producing content, which we love doing, but also let's learn from our colleagues as well. Yes, yes, yes. Because as you know, and we'll talk about on part two of this episode, we do write a lot of the tours that we give on this fashion Mm -hmm. history tour of Paris. But yes, it occurred to me, I'm like, let's just get on the internet and see when we were planning, see if anyone is offering fashion history tours, because obviously French fashion historians or people living in France doing tours are going to have a different perspective. They're going to know a lot more about, you know, kind of local haunts, et cetera, than we would as people coming from America to France. So the very first person who came up is Rebecca. And Rebecca runs a company called Textile Tours of Paris. And let me just tell you, dress listeners, all of, I think everyone, and this, she was only on our week one tour, but everyone on our week one tour was just enchanted by this woman as were April and I, Um, (laughs) she came to France from Ireland. She is Irish. She's not French, but she came to France to study and become an haute couture embroiderer, which she did for a couple years before she started this textile tour company. It's called Textile Tours of Paris, and it she offers guided tours of the haberdasheries and flea markets of Paris, as well as online embroidery classes. So she has this wonderful textile tales from Paris series in which she tells fascinating histories about Paris fashion and textiles. And she recently produced her Samples of Seduction, which is a collection of embroidery kits that are accompanied by self-guided online courses. 
And we were lucky enough to meet up with Rebecca for April. And I actually did two different sessions with her where she took us through this incredible storytelling journey behind her creation of these embroidery kits. And at first mentioning that you're just kind of like, what stories could an embroidery kit hold? Well, <laughs> well, we found out <laughs> yes, everything she does is incredibly thought out and incredibly meaningful. And so on a rainy day in Paris, the group, I small group I was with got caught in the rain running to the famous Shakespeare and company where we had a private room upstairs with an open window where Rebecca regaled us of the histories behind and the meaning behind this incredible embroidery kit. And first, just a brief mention about Shakespeare and Company because for our listeners who don't know it's a very very famous shop in Paris because bookstore. it's not bookstore not founded by a Parisian but actually founded by an American George Whitman in 1951 who says I created this bookstore like a man would write a novel be building each room like a chapter and I like people to open the door the way they open a book a book that leads into a magic world and their imaginations so it's this two-story bookstore and at tight full of tiny little rooms you have to wait in line to go in, but it's worth it. It's a magical space. It's now run by his daughter today. And so Rebecca is friends with them. She has a relationship with them. And so they allow her to do these one hour courses, essentially, where she took us upstairs into this room and she told us all these histories behind her embroidery kit. I'm just going to quote from her website because it's a brief dictionary of stitches is the first embroidery kit in the collection. It becomes in a gorgeous Rococo pink and raspberry embroidered box handmade in Paris with the celebrated Arjo Wiggins. I'm sorry if I butchered that paper, especially for staplers of seduction. Inside the box, the kit contains an embroidery pattern screen printed by French artisans on the softest Italian linen woven by the Graziano family for centuries. The sturdy birch wood embroidery hoop is carved, sanded, and waxed to a smooth perfection by Alpesi in England, and the heirloom nine centimeter gold plated embroidery stork scissors are forged by Lasso, a family who are passionate about reviving and preserving the craft of scissor making in France. And then there's a little needle book that holds the sharpest bohen embroidery needles manufactured for over 200 years, and then an envelope containing the finest silk embroidery threads made by Overa Swat in Paris, which is actually where your adventure with her April started. Do you want to tell us about your time with Rebecca? Yes, um, absolutely. And I just want to say like those materials that Cass just mentioned, um, Rebecca had been researching like the finest of the finest artisanal makers of all of those things for years before she assembled this kit. So like the linen that you are going to do your stitches on is like the highest quality. She knows the entire history of where it came from, how it was made. Um, one of the things that literally blew my mind was her backstory about the scissors. Yes. So uh, as, <laughs> as some of us probably know, um, you know, storks, the bird are associated with giving birth. Well, we also know that a lot of sewing scissors have like a bird motif on them. They are actually storks. And there is a direct connection 
between these two things. Apparently, um, because midwives oftentimes had so much time on their hands when women were going through labor, they would bring their needlework projects with them to work on while labor was, you know, doing its thing. And eventually when it came time to birth, they would use their stork scissors to cut the umbilical cord. And that is the reason why storks are associated with birth. And it has everything to do with sewing scissors, which is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So fascinating. I know. And that's, that's what we spent our hour doing, right? Is she told us all about these fascinating histories and stories, Mm -hmm. but you actually had, you were not at Shakespeare and company for your group. You were actually at a very, very special historic establishment as well. Absolutely. Um, we had our little um, session with Rebecca Averasois, which was established more than 200 years ago. It was an, a company, a family business established in 1820. It is now run by the fifth generation of the Boucher family. Um, it was established just after the Napoleonic Wars ended. And this business has survived World War One. It has survived World War II. And essentially what they are, are the creme de la creme of the purveyors of silk thread in the entire world. Um, so the the space that we were in is not typically open to shoppers on the day-to-day. So we were in a little bit of a private space, but just you know, to be there talking about the history of embroidery in this very, very, very old, very, very well-respected business that is over 200 years old. I mean, this is this is what we were getting up to when we were in Paris. And listeners, if this is what you will get up to if you join us on one of our next tours. This is the type of stuff we live for, right? Yeah. So we've <laughs> delivered, let's just say that. And you actually can, I believe, book this experience for yourself through Rebecca's mm-hmm. website, yeah. which is Textile Tours of Paris. So the next thing, this, this was just the kind of start of our experience with Rebecca, because we actually also booked one of her three-hour walking tours through mm-hmm. the haberdasheries and some of the oldest shops and special shops selling sewing notions, right? And again, might sound kind of basic, but let me just tell you, going to these places with Rebecca specifically was incredibly special. We actually started with her at Ultramod, which we did go to on our first Parisian trip, April, which is Mm -hmm. the oldest haberdashery in Paris. It was opened in 1832. And so again, haberdasheries are where you would buy small notions like needles, scissors, threads, buttons. And in the case of Ultramod, they also had silk flowers and ribbons. And she just regaled us again with these fascinating stories and histories, such as the Italian silk weavers in France, which I actually have a little clip of that we're going to listen to now. So when Louis XIV moved all of the aristocrats to Versailles, he realized that they were spending a fortune on silks from Italy, okay? He had no problem with them spending a fortune on luxury materials. He had a really big problem with it being Italian. So, (laughs) there you go. So, uh, his prime minister, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, sent spies to Italy to bring back silk weavers. Many of them were assassinated because it was high treason, because silk brought in so much money to the Italian economy. The ones who did arrive in France weren't very well received either, but, and they stayed for about 10 years. Okay. 
and they were able to really help the French artisans kind of develop their skills. Okay. Okay, so one of the other establishments that was supremely special that was part of Rebecca's walking tour of textile establishments was Annie Bouquet. And Annie Bouquet is the name of the business. And Annie Bouquet is also the name of the queen of Parisian needlepoint. (laughs) (laughs) And and she really, really, truly is. She uh, actually creates a lot of her own designs. And this is also something very fascinating that Rebecca like regaled us with on a couple different points is that oftentimes people who are embroidery designers or needlepoint designers are not actually the people who are the practitioners in France, there seems to be like a separation of like the design aspect and the artisanal maker aspect. That line is being blurred a little bit more now. Um, And Annie is one such individual and she is the queen of needlepoint um, so much so that all the thread manufacturers, embroidery thread manufacturers will die their threads to her specific color palette. That is some mad respect, I just have to say. <laughs> so you can go into Annie's store. Annie will probably be there. She 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 is the person running the store. You can go in and you can chat with her. If you speak French, she speaks French. If you speak French, yes, yes. yes. And you can buy her uh, needlepoint kits and they come on the substrate itself, which she has hand painted the designs. And they come with a specific threads and it's, it's just so lovely. And I think that, I don't know of all the places that we stopped Cass, I think that's where um, the people on the trip bought the most. Yes. <laughs> Super into needle point. Yes. <laughs> Everybody was. Because she makes very it kind excited. of easy and approachable, right? If you've never done it before, it's yeah. like so inspiring. We went in there. It's the little tiniest shop. The storefront is like 18th century, I swear, early 19th century. It's the most enchanting little store shop. And then it's like hand-painted Annie Bouquet. It's a tiny little shop. You go in. And again, like April said, Annie will probably be the one to greet you. And Rebecca just gave us the most lovely presentation. She showed us some of Annie's hand-painted work that then gets transformed into needlepoint patterning. And it was just, again, just another really enchanting way to spend our day in Paris, um, learning about textile, Mm -hmm. not only textile history, but contemporary textile makers who carry on these really historic traditions. Yes, And I just want to say that bouquet is spelled exactly like you think it would be if you're thinking about a group of flowers. So yes. And she does have an Instagram so you can check her out. Mm -hmm. And so the third stop on our Paris adventure for the day, and I'm probably going to butcher this. So forgive me, la droguerie. Colors would come into Europe as dried goods. And the Dutch word for a dry good is drogue. So that when I arrived here first, I said, why is there yarn in a chemist or is it a pharmacy or what's going on linguistically? But that's what it is. A color merchant was called a drogist. So you would ha- you would go to the apothecary to buy your color. Like if you think about Scarlett Johansson and Colin Firth in Girl with a Pearl Earring, 
lovely thoughts there. So, <laughs> Scarlett Johansson is sent to the market to buy the dried colour, and she brings it back then, and she grinds it to make it into to paint for a column for Vermeer. Um, uh, but she has gone to the apothecary to get that. So that's where the name comes from. It's kind of a, a nod or a wink to that industry that most of us, or that craft, most of us are, have forgotten about. And the system that they set up is that they, because we, we've been talking about this with Annie Bouquet, they knew that lots of people in France would want to use their hands and be crafty and creative, but they wouldn't have the confidence to be artistic and kind of orientated towards design. So from the beginning, they brought in designers. So they have this library of knitwear patterns here. Um, I always thought that these were for sale when I came in here first. I was like, oh yeah, I'll take that and that and that. And they're like, eh, no, Rebecca, you go over here, you buy your pattern and you make it yourself. Um, and what they do is in each pattern, you're told how much weight you need for your yarn. And then the sales assistants will use these swifts. Swifters? Swifts? Yeah. Uh, and they will create, they will weigh your yarn and you'll go home then with these little balls of wool. And this is the place where we also learned about how to shop at this specific etiquette. establishment. We learned a lot of shopping <laughs> etiquette because apparently you you can't self-serve. This is not a self-serving shop. You need a salesperson to help you. And apparently that salesperson can even be stolen from you if you're not on your game. So you have to go into this store very much knowing kind of what you're looking for and keeping your eye on the prize. Um, but it was really cool. There's like all all of these stores are just beautiful to look at. And this store in particular had jars full and full of different beads and buttons. And it was really, really special. Yeah. And I, th I think that, that was so interesting that what you just mentioned, Cass, about the like the process or the etiquette of shopping at some of these like historic establishments, they're they are preserving tradition in a very specific way that is very Parisian, that is very French. Um, they do not have barcodes on their products. The price for these objects is oftentimes just in your salesperson's head. Um, all of the receipts are still written out by hand. And this is a continuance of the tradition. And it's and it's it's very much prized um, within this kind of like world of kind of high-end textiles notions, sewing accoutrement, I guess. Yes. And just a really, really cool experience. And then that led us to our fourth spot, which I happen to know, April, was the highlight of your day. Oh my God. Gosh, <laughs> Rebecca was not joking when she told me, Makuba, where all of your dreams come true. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. So dress listeners, for me, if you're going to stop at any of these establishments, run, don't walk to Makuba. It is basically the haute couture ribbon purveyor to the fashion industry. And we're talking ribbons of all shapes, all sizes, the finest quality you have ever seen, like velvet ribbons, satin ribbons, you know, silk velvet ribbons, metallic. Like with actual gold and silver in it. Yeah. Um, the most beautiful things that you've ever seen, just literally kind of like walking in there, like make sure heart stop, 
uh, takes your breath away a little bit. And one extra, extra, extra pro tip that I want to mention is that even if you go into Makuba and you see all the ribbons and you're in there for like 45 minutes, because you're like so mesmerized, you can't stop looking at things. Um, there is actually a lace room and there is <laughs> an back. atrium. Yeah. You have to cross an outdoor kind of like atrium space to go into yet another room at Makuba where all the lace is. I want to talk to you about lace for a little minute. Chantilly is a town that is very famous for lace. Um, and that is because the princess of Chantilly, the princess of Condé, decided that she wanted to support the community. So she uh, sponsored 20, I can't, 20 something local young girls, orphan girls, um, and she brought them in a lace teacher, okay? And she also gave them red cloaks um, so that when they walked through the town, all the townspeople would know that they were her, her charges. And they used to be called the Little Red Orphan Girls. Obviously, we've all seen The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> <laughs> and that sounds terrifying to us. But what the princess was showing was her generosity. Um, within you know a very short time, lace merchants showed up in Chantilly because the standard of lace making was so high. Okay, the lace merchants were mainly men. The lace merchants made a fortune. Okay, um, and they were very quickly they were selling to people like Rose Bertin. She would have been buying lace from Chantilly. Um, and then the <clears throat> excuse me, the Prince of Condé. He decided that he would sponsor the young local boys and he set up a drawing school. Okay. So, because we know that, you know, boys are trained in fine art and drawing and things like that. And then he set up a carpentry centre where they could make the bobbins, the Chantilly laces, bobbin lace. So the entire town was dedicated to lace making and, you know, they were making a very good living from it. Um, to the point that, I think this is really important, just we've been talking so much about economy and how people are treated and craftspeople and so on. When the French Revolution broke out in Paris, which is only 25 minutes by train, an hour by horse and carriage, I don't know. <laughs> um, the revolution didn't break, up, break out in Chantilly because the local people, the townspeople, had a completely different relationship with the aristocracy. They were educated, trained, they had, they had a livable wage, they had a much higher standard of living. And there was a different appreciation of craft. So if you are a sewist, this is your number one fabric stop in Paris. That's my pick. Just saying. I don't know how you feel. <laughs> if Cass. you need ribbon. <laughs> no, I mean, it's all. Or it's I just awesome. want to look at amazingly, stunningly beautiful things. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, they're all amazing. Right. And she's, it's a walking tour. So one, of course you should probably book Rebecca to do this, but if you don't book Rebecca mm -hmm. and you can only make one or two of these stops, they are within walking distance of one another. And then our trip ended at Overassois where April did her um, samples of seduction talk. And once we were there, and again, this place is a showroom. It's not open to the public. Uh, so this is one of those experiences you can only get through Rebecca. And we were, um, we, that is where we purchased embroidery kits, which were amazing. I got a little cute uh, Eiffel Tower kit for my mom. Yes. And I got a, I got a couple different kits. I left all these places with something with these high aspirations that I was going to create. So I need to keep that momentum going and actually 
<laughs> keep the inspiration. Um, so I actually transformed this into creating something, but I mean, we can obviously talk on and on about this. This was such an incredible experience. You're just going to have to book a tour with Rebecca for yourself. You can do that textile tours of Paris.com. That's also where you can find PDF pamphlets that you can download on your own kind of guides. She has guides to textile shopping in London and textile shopping in Paris. Uh, you can also mm -hmm. book an online embroidery class with her. There's so many things there. So head to Textile Tours of Paris. Uh, you can also follow her on Instagram at Textiles Tour Textile Tours of Paris. So check her out. But that's not the only guided tour we did, April. No, 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 no. <laughs> this next one, I think that we should talk about the opera. And I'm just going to say that people might have cried on this tour uh <laughs> not out of sadness but because of the like extreme opulence and beauty extreme opulence and beauty but also because the Palais Garnier which we're going to talk about next is famously the setting for Gaston Leroux's 1910 novel The Phantom of the Opera so yeah. and then of course the subsequent adaptations and films and the popular 1986 musical which just closed on Broadway by the way but the Phantom of the Opera right so we had at least one major Phantom of the Opera fan so it was really cool um to see that she knows who she is yes <laughs> um, <laughs> And so constructed, uh, the Palais Garnier is uh, the Opera House of Paris. Um, it was constructed at the behest of Napoleon III from 1861 to 1875. And it was constructed by the architect Charles Garnier, who apparently it was not legal or frowned down upon to sign your buildings. So he actually had to like hide his signature in the ceiling there. So that was one of the cool things we learned in this tour. I mean, this, I don't know if this opera house can be rivaled in opulence around the world. It's definitely considered one of the most beautiful, opulent opera houses in the world. It's insane. And that is just what you mm -hmm. can see. Um, just general admission public as the public go in, you can go in and walk around during the day. Of course you can still go see, they don't really do operas there anymore. It's more ballets, but you can check it out for yourself. But what was so special about the tour we did is it was behind the scenes. And we got to go into the costume shop. <laughs> Yes, but first we went all the way down to the basement where the lake is mm -hmm. that the Phantom of the Opera, I mean, if you've watched Phantom of the Opera, you know that there's a lake down there. So we got to see the lake, or I guess we should say the little pool that has water in it. <laughs> so <laughs> the lake's based on. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is so fascinating to me because it's all about architectural history mm -hmm. at this point right not necessarily fashion history so this the land that the, the uh, Palais Garnier was built on was apparently marshland so it was very soggy so the architect knew that he was going to need to kind of like reinforce uh, the foundations of the opera house because it was marshland so what they did is they built cisterns into like concrete cisterns like into the land itself that they then filled with water then there's two of them and those are the foundations of the opera house and basically it's distributing the weight of this i mean you know multi multi multi-storied structure um and it those the fact that the cisterns are filled with water is what's like giving support 
to the entire thing, which is fascinating. Well, and also it's practical, right? Because if you know about the opera houses in Paris, they all burned down at multiple times, right? Throughout their histories, including the Palais Garnier. At multiple times it burned down because, or opera houses burned down because they were made of wood and before electricity, you know, you're using fire, real fire. Um, so that was a really practical need. And actually, apparently the fire department still practices there using these pools Mm -hmm. and it is they who put the fish down there. So there is actually little fish in these pools in the dark, (laughs) which we all kind of felt bad for. And one koi who was particularly mean to the other koi was in his own little pool. And we were all really sad about that. But so that, that was part of our tour. We went all the way to the basement. Um, We actually got to see the original wooden pulley systems where they would pull the scenery up and down. And this was all before we went into the costume shop, got a costume shop tour. So we got to walk through the real, very active costume shops where people were still working on whatever ballet was happening uh, while we were there. So that was really cool. Definitely Mm -hmm. a highlight. Yeah. And and also too, we got to go into this one room that is like a, a, a national monument, just the room in an, in the opera house itself that dates back to the 19th century. And it's not necessarily where they store the costumes because they have so many, they cannot store them all on site that is in a different location where their storage is, but it's where they stage the costumes for upcoming productions. And it's all wood paneled. Um, it looks exactly like it did back in the 19th century. And one of the most incredible things is that the tutus, they have to store them upside down, right? It makes perfect sense. Like you don't want all that gravity pulling down on the tutu. So they store them upside down, hung from the ceiling. And when we were there uh, on one visit, all the tutus that were hung from the ceiling upside down in this room were for their production of Swan Lake, which is, it was just, it was too much for some yes, of us. It was we got a little emotional. Very magical. <laughs> yes. Um, can I talk about one of my favorite things that we did? Yes. And we did this on week two. Um, we did not do this with our first group, but I think moving forward, if we, if we run these Paris tours again, this will probably definitely be on the roster of events that we will continue to do. We went to the Musée de Perfume that is run by Fragonard, the historic, um, legendary perfume and cosmetics company. Here's what I learned at Fragonard. I learned that I know nothing (laughs) and that I've been doing everything wrong this entire time. About wearing (laughs) perfume, right? Yes. Yes, me too. (laughs) Because we got a tour, right? Uh, they have a museum, which was just incredible. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we got a like a personal tour of the museum with one of their guides, um, who then accompanied us into their boutique and also kind of like clued us into some fun facts about the history of perfume, how to wear, and like the Fragonard like arsenal of products. I, I, I how did this never come up in my brain before? But like Cass, I really, truly did not know that there were like these differences between eau de cologne, eau de toilette, eau de perfume, and perfume. We learned about all of those differences, and that has to do with the percentage of the active scent ingredient that's in the product. And that ranges anywhere from like 5% um, to what true perfume, pure perfume, is only like 25%. I did not know that 
each of those indicators correlates to how long it will last on your body. I did not know how to store my perfume properly, which is not in your bathroom. <laughs> or how to put on perfume, right? You're supposed to put it on only in three different places or where you you have veins. So the veins will like activate it and warm it up. So only put it on mm-hmm. your wrist and you don't pat your wrist. That's a big no-no. Put it on your wrist, um, put it on your elbows. And then I think at your base of your neck, right? Or behind yeah. your knees. So you can one, two, three, spray on your wrist, tap with your other wrist, tap, tap, tap at your like elbows and then your neck. Yeah. Fascinating. And also too, this entire whole etiquette in France about the potency of perfume that you wear for sp- certain occasions, right? So she was talking to us a lot about, um, you wouldn't like, this is a perfume that you could wear to work versus this is a perfume that you could wear on a date. Those two things are different in France. And it is considered, I guess, rude to your coworkers. If you don't do well in that, um, (laughs) selection on the day-to-day so I thought it was very interesting oh yeah it's super fascinating the museum is really cool too because it basically is a chronological history of perfume and like perfume bottles Mm -hmm. and that was really really fascinating all the way back to antiquity yes absolutely yeah and then they take you into a room where they tell you about the process like it's just it was a really immersive experience it was very very cool museum and tip it's right next to the opera Okay. We have one other supremely special experience. Do you want to talk about that? Yes. And this is how we will conclude today. And again, maybe this is (laughs) a third of the things we did in Paris, Um, but this was supremely special. We did this with our week two group. And that is we went to the home. uh, If you want to call it home seems a little understated. The opulent residence. Mansion. Mansion of one famed courtesan by the name of Esther Lockman, who of course is better known as La Paiva. And La Paiva Mm -hmm. was one of the most famous of the 19th century French courtesans. She herself was not French. She was actually born in Moscow to Polish Jewish parents before making her way to France. A society chronicle actually called her the queen of kept women, the sovereign of her race, because she did it well, right? These women- yes. These women, of course, are mistresses of famous men, right? Or not necessarily famous men, but wealthy men, right? That are married. They're often called the demi-mondaine. They occupy the demi-monde or half world. this like extravagant, opulent world um, that exists, you know, kind of below fine society. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but she actually had not one, two, but not one, but two kind of advantageous marriages. So she really like built this incredible life for herself. Um, she got her name and wealth and her extraordinary house after she married a man, Marquise Albino Francisco de Paiva. And that's where she got her name. Then they got divorced so that she could marry kind of the second, not kind of, I think he was believed to be like the second wealthiest man in Germany. So she was incredibly wealthy and she built this incredible house that um, in a hotel particular on the 20, uh, 25 Avenue des Champs-Élysées. And there's actually this legend that goes about with how she found this location. She apparently, you know, she's not a part of respectable society, right? So a lot of these women weren't necessarily treated properly or well by people who looked down upon them and apparently she was pushed out of a cab and like hurried out and was hurt she was hurt at this location and she basically vowed then and there that she was going to come back right 
and like build this incredible life for herself and build this immaculate, insanely ridiculous house. And she did. And we got to take a tour of it. And the reason why this is so special is because it is a private club now. And not only is it a private club where the public is not really allowed in, it's a private men's club. So especially women are not Which is allowed so in. ironic and ridiculous, right? <laughs> because this woman built this like castle to herself, right? She's like... Yeah. You go in entirely like funded by her sexuality. Yeah. Funded by her and homage to herself. She's like painted naked on the ceilings. She's in every single room, like embodied by uh, the deity or Diana, right? The Greek goddess Diana. Uh And And also, and Venus, the goddess of love. So she's like everywhere. This is her place. And now for it to be a gentleman's Uh only club, it's just, I don't know. I have a lot of opinions about it. But yes, we still were able to go inside, which was amazing. So how this all came about, how the, the how her house became this men's tra- very traditional uptight, I guess, kind of like men's club is that she died before her husband did. And when he uh, he decided to sell the house, it was this men's club that bought it in the early, early, early 20th century. So I think it was like 1903 or something. So it has been owned by this men's club uh, for something like 120 something years. So um, when I say men's club, we're not talking like a gentleman's club, like a strip club. This is like a, you know, uh, you know, where you go and you read your book and you uh, you smoke your cigar and you hang out with your friends. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the fact that we were allowed access very, very early on a Saturday morning as a, a group of exclusively women phenomenal and and um there was a very lovely french tour organizer that helped us with this and he he let us know before we went inside that this was um a pretty special and uh exclusive experience that we were about to have holy moly this home is insane it has a spiral staircase that is from like golden or kind of like a golden yellow kind of green onyx that was crafted in situ. It's a spiral staircase that goes all the way up, meaning when they crafted it in situ, it means that the onyx was brought in and then they created stairs from the block of onyx on site. Which logistically, like how the heck did that even happen? But I mean, these are questions that we may never know. The NS cast was um, referencing, you know, there's so many references to Venus. There's so many references to Diana, the goddess of the hunt, um, and also lionesses, which was another kind of like little nickname for high class courtesans that are hidden all over the house in the art in the paintings on the mantelpieces or not hidden. I mean, she's like really proud of that fact, right? I mean, where society's like looking down their nose at her. She's like, no, this is who I am and where I've come from and look what I've built for myself. Right. So it's really powerful in that way. And like, by all accounts, she wasn't necessarily like the most beautiful woman. Right. Um, but she obviously had like wit and like intelligence and was like incredibly captivating to all of these people. She actually held a literary salon there, a very famous literary salon for kind of like the you know luminaries of the period so um, the literati 
Yeah. And so maybe fashion isn't necessarily on display, but it's all part and parcel of like that lifestyle where of course she was a client of worth. Our tour guide talked about um, how she was a client of all these different haute couturiers. And so the fashions that would have been worn in and, and worn specifically for, to accompany this type of setting we can imagine. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was really, really cool. I mean, she had Very lots and lots of parties. Some of the mantle pieces in, in her home actually have, are, they have like a divot or like a trough in them. And it was for ice because that is where all the bottles of champagne were going to be iced in the mantle piece, in the marble mantle piece, like mind blowing. Yeah. So amazing dress listeners. And we are actually going to end our podcast today here because we actually have so many more fashion history related things to share with you in part two of this episode. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, of course, to all of our listeners who joined us in Paris and we will see you more. We'll bring you more Paris fashion history on Thursday. That does it for us today. Dress listeners, may you consider the legacy of Parisian fashion that might reside in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so at hello at dressedhistory.com. You can also DM us on Instagram, which is at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images accompanying each week's episodes. Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of Dress Media. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.